Good morning. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. We're just going to look at the first six verses, and uh, we're actually starting the last little section of the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a little bit now, one of Jesus' famous sermons, probably one of his most well-known words, and uh, one of the themes that we've been tracing throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is this idea of wholeness and integrity. The idea that your outside matches your inside. The things that you profess and believe work itself out in the actual life that you live. And Jesus lays out that vision of what the kingdom of heaven is like. What do people who are redeemed look like when they live in community? That their vertical relationship with God affects their horizontal relationship with one another and that they have integrity in everything that they do. And then he goes through different aspects of our life and how we can show that kind of integrity, how we can show the kind of spirit-filled life that marks the people of God. And today, this morning, we're going to look at one of our favorite pastimes, how to have integrity, and one of our pet hobbies, judging each other. (laughs) Now, it's tempting. You know, everybody hates judgmental Christians, right? Are we just sick of judgmental Christians? They're so mean and nasty and rigid. Not like us. We are humble and sophisticated and winsome and nice. Not like them over there. We're better than them. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. See, this is one of those sermons that's very tempting to think, I really hope so-and-so takes notes. (laughs) Right? Well, if you thought that, This sermon's for you, (laughs) right? So we're going to hear Jesus lay out how integrity manifests itself in the way that we treat one another, specifically with regard to judging one another. So read along with me. This is Matthew 7, verses 1 to 6. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray before we jump into the rest of this passage. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds to understand your word. Give us conviction. Give us a sense of the authority of your word over our lives. If there's anything in us that adopts this spirit of judgmentalism, if there's any self-righteousness in us, we pray that you would use your word to expose that and help us to walk in the newness of life that you promise. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Judge not that you be not judged. It's probably one of the most famous and beloved verses of people who aren't Christians. 
Because everybody loves the idea of no moral judgments on anything whatsoever. But is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying that we should never judge at all? I don't think so, because later on in the verse, Jesus calls certain people dogs and pigs. And he uses very harsh language to describe the ways that we're supposed to deal with certain types of people. And one of the difficulties is, in English, when we think about the word judge, we think very narrowly in terms of condemnation. But in in the Greek language, the word for judge is very broad. It can mean evaluating, discerning, deciding. So the act of judging is about discernment, right? I mean, we want people to judge. You, You want your kids to judge who's a stranger and who's not. You want your grandma to judge what email to open up, right? You want to exercise discernment, and you want the people you love to exercise discernment. So Jesus is not against judgment. In fact, in John 7, Jesus says, if you're going to judge, you should judge righteously. You should judge righteously. But what he's talking about here is not the act of judgment, but the attitude of judgmentalism, this critical, biting attitude that we can adopt toward one another, this self-righteous posture. And one of the ways that he helps us understand how we're to relate to one another is he, again, he reminds us, if you're part of the kingdom of God, your whole life is lived before the face of God. That God is this ever-present third party. Every judgment you make of someone else, you're doing in the face of your righteous judge. And that should change the way that we act. There's a great show, reality show, called Undercover Boss. And one of the things they do is there's the CEO and he goes undercover in his own company as a low-level worker and he'll work a normal you know, shift, a normal day, and what he'll do is he'll encounter some great workers who are awesome and then he'll also encounter that one mid-level manager who's just terrible. And that person is treating all the other employees terrible, treating him terribly because they think that he's just a grunt. And the moment that is so satisfying, that moment of sweet justice is at the very end when he reveals himself to be the CEO, and he ends up firing that mid-level manager. And you can see the look on their face, and you know what they're thinking. This manager is saying, well, I wouldn't have treated them that way had I known you were in the room. I would not have treated them that way had I known my boss was actually present in the way that I spoke to my fellow employees. In the same way, Would we speak the way that we do to one another if we really recognize that we're speaking these things before the face of God? All of our life is lived before the face of our righteous judge. And because God is our righteous judge, we should judge one another rightly, justly, and avoid a critical, domineering, domineering, self-righteous spirit. Thankfully, we get some instructions on how we can apply that. How can we judge rightly. I think there's three ways we can do that. First, we establish the right standard. If you want to judge rightly, you've got to establish the right standard. Second, you've got to get the right perspective. And finally, you've got to pick the right battles. The right standard, the right perspective, and the right battles. Let's look at that first one. How do we establish the right standard? Judgmentalism at its core is about double standards. A judgmental person applies a harsher standard to somebody else than they do to themselves. And that's why Jesus says, you got to understand, 
by the measure you judge someone else, you too will be judged. Whatever standard you judge someone else with, you too will be judged by that standard. In other words, there's an objective law that hangs above your head as well as the person that you are judging. Francis Schaeffer is a great illustration of this. He says if you had a tape recorder around your neck that recorded every time you judged somebody, every comment you made about somebody, and then at the end of your life somebody played the recording of all those judgments, would you pass your own test? Would you fulfill your own standards? And that's what he's trying to point out here. And we often think people who are really judgmental or you know, legalistic or self-righteous, they just they care too much about holiness. They care too much about God's law. They care too much about the authority of God. And they just need to lighten up. But in reality, they don't care at all. They actually don't care about God's law. They actually don't care about God's authority at all. Because what they have done is they've replaced God's standard with their own standard. God's law is impartial. It is holy and it's just. But when you are judgmental, what are you doing? You're lowering the law so that you pass, but other people fail. You excuse your own mistakes, your own sins. You justify them. It's different for me. And then you apply that same, uh, you apply a, a, a fake standard to somebody else, or you apply a standard to them that you don't apply to yourself. And that's the double standard that Jesus is rebuking in this passage. And the idea is, by your very own words, you'll condemn yourself. There's a great example of this. You think about King David. King David is, you know, he commits this horrible sin with Bathsheba. He takes her from her husband. He commits adultery with her. And then he has her husband killed. I mean, this is a major blemish on his record as a king, right? And Nathan the prophet goes up and he, and he confronts him about this sin. And he does it in sort of a roundabout way. He presents him with a little parable. And he says, David, I want you to imagine this rich guy. He's got all this, you know, all these sheep. And he goes and he steals the one beloved sheep of this poor man. What do you think about that guy? And David's full of righteous indignation. He's just mad. He's like, I can't believe this injustice. He's like, that man should die. And Nathan says that famous line, you are the man. You are condemning yourself by your very own standard. Now, how did David miss that? Well, the same way that we miss it. We're often very blind to our self-bias. We're, we're blind to our own pride. We're blind to the ways that we lie to ourselves about our own sin. And not only does a person who's self-righteous replace God's standard with their standard, but they actually take the place of God. They anoint themselves as judge, jury, and executioner. You can imagine two kids, two siblings, an older sibling and younger, younger sibling. It's, it's fine for an older sister to say to a younger sister, hey, mom said not to do that. It's another thing if she starts to put her younger sister in time out and take away her privileges and discipline her. Now, she has taken a role that she doesn't have the authority to take. She has now placed herself in the role of mom. And then the mom has to come and say, hey, you're not the mommy, right? And in some respect, when we talk about our relationships to one another, what we're supposed to do is we warn one another. We go, hey, look, God said not to do that. That's not being judgmental. That's just telling you the truth. That's love. God said that's sin. God said not to do that. It's another thing to say, I am the standard. You need to prove yourself to me. I'm the one who's going to ultimately bring judgment upon you. Now, we we leave judgment to the Lord. We're just fellow sinners warning one another of what God's standard is. And so the person who's self-righteous, they don't actually care about the standard. They lower it to excuse themselves, and they place themselves in God's seat. It's actually an offense to God what they're doing. Now, there are some times 
when God does delegate authority to people. Think about in the sphere of the family. He delegates his authority to parents, to a mother and a father, to discipline their children. He delegates authority to the civil magistrate, he, to, civil lead, to, to government leaders to exercise justice, to punish evildoers. He, he gives the church the authority to discipline, to excommunicate people. You know, that famous phrase that we think is all about prayer meetings is, you know, for two or three gather my name, there I am with them. If you read the whole context, it's about a church discipline process. And he's saying if the church gathers together after a long, painful process of adjudicating whether somebody is an unrepentant sin, they're given authority by Jesus to say, we're going to put you outside of the church. And Jesus says, if you make that judgment, I'm there with you. Now, all of these fears in the family, in the government, and in the church, all of this authority is delegated, and also all of the authority is underneath God's authority. And so every minister, every parent, every person in governmental authority is underneath the law of God and will, hold, and will be held accountable by him as well. So we are all placed under that, even though there's still some delegated authority. But God is the judge. God is the standard, even if he delegates some of his authority to people. But at the heart of it is the self-righteousness that we feel is ultimately about pride. It's about lifting ourselves up. It's by using the law to lift ourselves over other people. You know, like a, a cynical person is always, you know, looking down on other people. A cynical person sees through everything except for himself. The person who is self-righteous sees all the problems of everybody else, but is completely blind to their own problems. There's a great quote uh, by, by John Calvin. He talks about the pleasure that we get from judging other people. I mean, hypothetically, not that we've ever experienced that, but just imagine if you ever experienced that. And he says, some, there's some strange enjoyment, for there is hardly any person who is not tickled with the desire of inquiring into other people's faults. Just the idea, what's going on with their life? Oh, their marriage isn't doing too, doing too, doing too good? Oh, okay. Oh, their parenting style, you know, I just, hmm. And you just love the sense of smug superiority, the smile that cracks open when other people's faults begin to build yourself up as greater than them. And that's something that I think we all feel and all face. But again, that's a blindness to our own pride. Think about in Luke chapter 18. Jesus has a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, he's just making this case. He goes, look at all the sinners over there. I fast twice a week. I give all of my money away. And I... I, I, I worship the Lord. I know all this scripture. I know all this stuff. Thank God I'm not like them over there. And then there's a tax collector who has no religious pedigree. He has no uh, resume to commend himself to God. And he beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the guy who gets it. That's actually the guy who believes God the most. That's actually the guy who understands the holiness of God's law. That's actually the guy who recognizes God as judge. It's not the guy who's making this case for himself, the guy who truly honors the righteousness and perfect standard of God is the guy who beats his chest and goes, I got nothing. I got nothing. And see, the Pharisee is blind to his very own spiritual need. But the tax collector, he sees it. He recognizes before the law he's destitute. He has nothing to commend himself. And so pride and those blind spots that we have, it's difficult to uncover those things. But thankfully, Jesus gives us some instructions on how to do that. And that's the second point. After we establish the right standard, 
we can now start to get perspective. He lays out this process, and it's, it comes in two parts. Part one, you want to take the log out of your eye, and part two, you want to help your brother remove his speck. And there's a couple things that he's doing here. First, it's an absurd image. I mean, if you want to dig a speck out of your eye, that's a delicate process. And then this guy comes barreling in with this log, and he's knocking things over, and he's going, I can help you. I'm the guy. And you're like, you don't seem like you're fit for this job at all. And it's meant to make you think how absurd that is. But there's a couple things that Jesus does that I think are very, very interesting in this, in this, in this little instruction manual he gives for, for eliminating self-righteousness. First, he, he also he relativizes everything, or rather he, he reframes the way that we approach a fellow brother by calling him a brother. He says when you approach somebody, you have to have the familial reality in view. One of the reasons that people don't get along in church, and I think it's a very basic reason, is we all have this common faith that draws us together to worship. And it draws people together that normally, if it were just up to us, we wouldn't really hang out with each other by temperament, by background, by the way we grew up. Some of us, if we met each other just on Twitter, we would hate each other, right? But we're brought together in person, and this brings people who are different together and that means that we're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to have some disagreements, but it's that familial image, the idea that the Holy Spirit has bound us together that forces us to work it out, that forces us to extend grace, to love one another, to learn the discipline of what love means. And so he reframes it. He goes, no, 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 first of all, you're talking about your brother. You're talking about somebody for whom Christ died, that Christ's blood has forgiven. And that ought to be the lens through which you view that person. The second thing he does is the proportions are important. The log is bigger than the speck. He's not saying that if you have the log, your sin is worse than the other person's. It may, may very well be that theirs is way worse than yours. It's not about whether it's a bigger sin. It's saying that that's the priority. That should be the thing you handle first. Handle your own issues. Handle your own junk. Right? Confess your own sins so that Here's the eye imagery, so that that log is out of your eye, and if it's out of your eye, you can actually see. You can see things clearly. You can have a good conscience about it. But if you are being hypocritical, that's going to obstruct your vision. It's going to obstruct the way that you treat other people, and you're not going to be any help at all to your brother. Edwin Friedman, he's a psychologist. He he wrote um, a really great definition, I think, of what maturity is. He says that maturity uh, is the willingness to take responsibility for one's own emotional being and destiny. Maybe in more biblical terms, emotional maturity is self-control and a sober mind. The humility to say, I'm going to handle and take responsibility for what I'm responsible for so that I can actually help my brother. The sense of self-ownership. I'm going to confess my own sins. I'm going to make sure that I'm not being hypocritical, and then I'm going to be able to actually go and help my brother who's in need. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be sinless before you can approach your brother. Hypocrisy is different from just being imperfect. The issue with hypocrisy is deception. You're trying to appear a certain way that you're not. You're deceiving other people. An imperfect person, sinners like you and me, what do we do? We sin and then we admit it. We confess. 
and we receive the grace of God, and we repent. And by the Spirit's grace, we try to walk in newness of life, right? A person who has sinned, who's repenting, who keeps short accounts with God, you're constantly encountering the fresh grace and patience of God over and over and over again. That's going to change how you treat other people. But the the hypocritical person, they handle their sin by hiding it or by masking it with supposed virtues. They're not actually dealing with their sin. So it's not about sinless versus sinful person. It's about a sinful person who repents, who receives the grace of God, and a sinful person who refuses to repent and instead ignores their sin or masks their sin or justifies their sin. And sometimes we can play the Christian truce game where we don't really want to deal with our sin. We certainly don't want to get specific about it. And so what we go is, I see a problem in my brother, but if I mention it to him, then he'll be like mentioning stuff about me, and I don't want to deal with mine, so we'll just have a truce. We'll shake on it. I won't say anything about your sin. I, don't, I won't talk about your speck, and you just agree not to talk about my log, and we'll just go along and wave at each other at church and pretend like everything's fine. That's not what he's saying. He says you take out the log in order to deal with your brother's speck. In fact, sometimes we, it's a false humility. We don't want to deal with our own stuff. And so we just feel like let's just not rock the boat, not say anything to anybody else, because I don't want the magnifying glass to be on myself. It's a very sneaky way we can get around that self-responsibility. Or sometimes people will say, you know, well, we're all sinners, and I don't want to bring it up, because we're all sinners, or some will say, well, only God can judge me. And when we say those things, what do we really mean? When you say only God can judge me, you mean, I think God will be, I think his God, God is much nicer about my sin than you are. I think God cares less about sin than you do. But what if it's the opposite? What if he actually cares more about your sin? What if it grieves you even more? And what that does is it puts us all on a level playing field. You go, I've got to talk to my brother about this because sin is grievous. It's going to be destructive to him. I don't want that. And I've got to come in fear and trembling. I can't act like I'm better because God is grieved by my own sin. So how can I ever look down on him? So he's actually elevating the holiness and righteousness of God that, lowers, that flattens the playing field and allows us to actually come in humility toward one another. So here are some... Uh, maybe practical questions for log removal, right? First, ask yourself, am I committing the sin that I'm judging my brother for? That's the bare bare bones of hypocrisy. Are are you saying it's a sin for you, but not for me? There's There's a good reason for me, but not for you. Are you actually committing the sin that you are judging someone else very harshly for? A second question, do you actually want your brother's good? Do you actually want them to deal with the speck in their eye? Because then if they deal with their issue, how are you going to feel better than them? That's a, that's a heart-wrenching one, right? Sometimes we sit there and it's like, what if, what if their marriage did turn around and you couldn't feel superior? What if, what if they ended up overcoming that sin and they changed and turned their life around? Would you realize that there's a jealousy, there's an envy, that you actually didn't want them to change? You liked how much they relied on you? Do you actually want them to get better. Final question. Am I willing to extend the charity to them, the grace to them that I hope will be extended to me? You ever catch yourself saying, why doesn't so-and-so just blank? Right? Get it together. Get organized. Figure it out. Well, 
why don't you just become more patient? Well, because that's hard. Well, it might be hard for them. Right? Do you find yourself, you're the person who's always patient with everybody else? Well, everybody else might be being patient with you for being so impatient with them. And you may not be fun to be around. So we should humble one another and, and, and think to ourselves, wait a minute, if it were a sin that I struggle with, that's difficult for me, that I'm like, I know it, I get it, I shouldn't be doing this, how would I want someone to approach me? Right? And that can frame how you would approach somebody else. Would I want to just lay the hammer down? Would I want to just condemn them? Would I want somebody to come with me with genuine care and speak directly to me? And notice this facilitates direct communication. It's a brother speaking to another brother, directly, frankly, and in love. I think that's an important thing to remember. You can also think about when have you been dead wrong in your judgments of, of people? When have people been dead wrong about you? So you're not as, you don't have as many psychic powers as you think. You're not as intuitive as you might think. There are many times where your judgments of others have been wrong. And you can remember that. And that can humble you as you approach your brother. So establish the right standard, get the right perspective, and finally, you've got to pick the right battles. Got to pick the right battles. The transition to this next verse in verse 6 is really strange because you're like, he just talks about don't judge, don't be judgmental, and then he flips it and he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And you're like, where did that come from? And he just goes and right out the gate, he says, certain people are dogs and certain people are pigs and you shouldn't give them pearls. You shouldn't give them the treasure of the gospel. You shouldn't give them the time of day. You shouldn't invest your time with them. What is Jesus doing here? Well, I think he's, he recognizes our human tendency to overcorrect. So we go, okay, don't judge. Don't judge. We need to stop being judgmental. Well, what's the overcorrection? Don't judge anything. Everything's fine. Make no discernment. But Jesus, in a strange way, actually calls us to be discriminatory in the way that we act. He actually says, I still want you to be smart. I still want you to have some kind of sanctified savvy about how people work. You still need to make judgments, because he just makes judgments right here. Dogs and pigs. So what is he talking about? Well, Jonathan Pennington, he's a, he's a scholar on the book of Matthew. He wrote a great book analyzing the Sermon on the Mount. And he actually translates this uh, by, by looking at some of the context. And he says that what he's saying here is, do not toss your teachings to outsiders, lest they scornfully reject it and you. Right? He says, be very careful who you deal with. Be very cautious about the way that you evangelize and share the truth and invest in particular relationships. Um, you know, you think about that image. It's like if, you, if, you're, if your son or daughter, if a little kid is running up at a zoo and they're like, I want to feed the tiger, and they just stick their hand through the cage, you're going to freak out, right? And you're like, well, didn't you tell us to feed animals and be nice? to? It's like, yeah, but that's a tiger. He's going to rip your arm off. And he's saying, and these aren't cute farm animals he's talking about, dogs and pigs. Dogs, these are, these are wild hounds. And, and the pigs are boars. They're violent boars. Okay, these are savage, vicious animals. And he's saying, if you recognize that there are savage, vicious people 
completely obstinate, completely hard-hearted toward the gospel, and they're coming to attack you and to take you out, he's like, don't be a fool. Don't cast your pearls before them. They don't recognize the value of what you're giving them, and you need to be smart about it. I mean, Jesus says in Matthew 10, he gives this instruction where he's like, I'm sending you as sheep among wolves. And he says, like, if you go to a town and people are just rejecting the gospel, he says, move on, go to the next town. Dust your feet off. He actually says that, that they will face their own judgment. It'll be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, you need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Don't sin. Be innocent as doves, but you've got to have some cunning. You've got to have some sanctified street smarts. You've got to know, you've got to read the room. You've got to know what you're dealing with. And that's Jesus saying this. Um, I think sometimes, I, I see sometimes with college students, they're well-meaning, they love lost people, they love their lost roommates, their friends, and they get involved and entangled in these emotionally manipulative, destructive relationships. People take advantage of that. There are people who just want to destroy and rip apart their faith, and they use their goodwill as a way to tear them to pieces. And they need to be careful about this. They need to be discerning. Don Carson, he's a New Testament scholar, and he does a lot of apologetics. He does a lot of speaking on campuses, answering people's questions. He actually comments on this verse, and it's very interesting what he says. He says, Jesus' disciples are not even to present the riches of that revelation to certain people of vicious and unappreciative disposition. Their cynical mockery, their intellectual arrogance, their love of moral decay, and their vaunted self-sufficiency make them utterly impervious to the person and words of Christ. Over the years, I've gradually come to the place where I refuse to attempt to explain Christianity and introduce Christ to the person who just wants to mock and argue and ridicule. It accomplishes nothing good, and there are so many other opportunities worth, uh, where time and energy can be invested more profitably. There's a certain point where he says, look, don't be a fool. You have to recognize the way that people are. Think about Jesus, too. He says that he knew the hearts of men. What a fascinating thing for him to say. He's like, I know your hearts. And you're like, oh, Jesus knows our hearts. And he's like, I don't trust any of you. He, he, didn't ever, he never entrusted himself to men. There's actually an, an encounter he has with some chief uh, priests and scribes, and they're sitting there, and they're like, Jesus, where do you get the authority you know, to do all the miracles that you do? And Jesus looks at them, and, and he doesn't say this. He doesn't go, you know, that's a great question. Thank you for being so vulnerable for asking me that. I appreciate that. And I wish more people... No, he goes... He actually flips the script. He knows they're trying to trap him. And he actually asks them two questions to trap them. And at the end, he goes, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. He refuses to give an honest answer to dishonest questions. He knows the game that they're playing. He doesn't entrust himself to men. Right? And this comes straight from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 9, 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer, gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Proverbs is about wisdom. What is wisdom? It's it's applying the word of God in specific situations. It takes time. Sometimes it just takes age. It takes making mistakes. But that's the wisdom that we're to apply. Other places in Proverbs, answer full according to his folly. Don't answer him according to his folly. When do you do it? Well, you've got to be able to discern. You've got to know people. You've got to have your wits about you. You've got to be innocent as doves, but cunning as a serpent. There's a great movie, um, Darkest Hour, where it's about Winston Churchill's life. 
And he has this line there. It's actually, I don't think he actually ever said it, but it's a great line in the movie. And he's talking with these guys, and they're trying to, this is before the war, you know, hits its fever pitch, and they're trying to negotiate with Hitler. And Churchill has this uh, great line. He kind of sputters it out. And he says, you cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Right? He's saying, you're trying to be nice and winsome, and this guy's trying to kill you. He's trying to eat you alive. You've got to understand. You've got to have sense about what's actually going on. You, know, you, you can't nice people into the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus, nobody was more meek and humble and kind to people, kind to the lost than Jesus, and he was crucified. Right? And, and he was also oddly discriminating in the way that he reached out to people. With the obstinate, hard-hearted Pharisees, he really didn't give them the time of day. Or he would challenge them right back. But with some of the poor, sick, wounded people he was coming around, he was very gentle because he knew they got it. The people who had the 2020 spiritual vision were the ones who recognized the poverty of their spirits. That's the Beatitudes, the poor in spirit. They're the ones who are the ripe, ripe for the harvest of the gospel. They're the ones who understood what Jesus was trying to say. Right? But not all of them believed either. So he was very discerning in the way that he used his time, the way that he reached out to people, and I think we should, we should be that way too. We should think about how we invest our time, and we shouldn't be suckers. Right? We are going to be fools for proclaiming the gospel. That's fine. But we don't want to play games with fools. Right? We are going to suffer for the gospel. We don't want to foolishly seek martyrdom. And the difference is wisdom. So get the right standard. Establish the right standard. Get the right perspective. Right? Is there, are you committing the same sin? Get the log out of your eye. And then also be discerning in your interactions with other people. These are all the elements that Jesus weaves together to teach us about judging rightly. And at the end of the day, how we judge reflects how we think God is. Right? What is God like? He's just, absolutely. He's truthful, for sure. But he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. His mercy triumphs over judgment. And how does his mercy triumph over judgment? It's not by waving away truth or the grievous nature of our sin, it's by making atonement by the blood of a cross. Think about the wrath of God poured out on Christ and Christ willingly undergoing that mission. It was his joy. It was his duty. It was his delight. It was his love for us that compels him to give up his life on our behalf. And when you see in the atonement is you see the absolute seriousness of God's wrath towards sin and the overwhelming love and mercy as towards sinners. He justifies the ungodly. I heard someone say, uh, God is easy to please, but impossible to satisfy. Easy to please, impossible to satisfy. In other words, every little moment of our stumbling, imperfect obedience, he delights in. He delights in it. Every small moment of repentance, but he's never satisfied. He wants to stay there. And you probably know this as a parent. You love it when your kid just starts walking a couple steps. And you're like, it's amazing. You act like it's the greatest thing in the world and you're filled with joy. But you don't want them to stay there. And I think we can reflect it in our church. 
We tell the truth to one another. We speak directly. We don't gossip. We don't backbite, all that stuff. We speak directly, but we do it with humility. And we do it being easily pleased. When we start to see somebody go, you know, I think you're right. We don't go, yeah, I was right. You go, praise God, that's amazing. I'm here for you. Let's keep talking. And you celebrate those small wins. And you delight in the, in the small movements people have toward repentance. But you never stay satisfied. You go, let's keep going together, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. Let's do this together. And I think if we embody that, if we embody that spirit, we're going to provide a counterculture to the world, full of judgment, full of scorn. This is what it looks like when mercy triumphs over judgment, as it plays itself out through our ordinary lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks clearly into our lives. And we pray that you would help us to walk in humility and repentance. Lord, if there's anything in our hearts, any double standards that we have, would you reveal them to us and help us to confess them and receive your grace? We praise you that you have dealt with our sin. You don't look upon us with a constant list of our faults, but you look upon us in Christ. You look upon us as those whom you have chosen to love, even when we were sinners. Lord, your love for us precedes our decision to love you. Help us in our relationships. If there are tensions in marriages, there are tensions at work, there are tensions with children, if there's judgmentalism everywhere, help us to turn from that. Give us the grace to do that. We want to reflect your gracious character. And we can't do this without the empowering of your spirit. So we ask that your word and your spirit together would make this come alive in our heart in a powerful way. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.